1: Welcome to Metaphysical Milkshake, the show where we go deep, we get weird, and we search for the meaning of life along the way. Presented by Cast Media and Soul Pancake.
2: Hi there. Welcome to Metaphysical Milkshake. I'm Rain Wilson.
1: <sighs> and I'm Reza Haslan. Hey. Hey, what's uh, wrong? You know, Rain, I don't know, man. I've, I've been cooped up in this house for two years with this damn pandemic, and I'm. I'm, I'm telling you, man. I'm, I'm ready to, I'm ready to get out there and, and have some fun. I'm, I'm just miserable all the time now.
2: Wow. Okay. I'm up for that, Reza. What do you want to, do you want to play some online, uh, Dungeons and Dragons over Zoom or something? No, I don't want to do that again. I want to do
1: something crazier. I want to like, experience the Roaring Twenties, man. I want to go hang gliding. I want to like, jump out of an airplane. When is Burning Man? Okay. Wait. Wait. Well, slow.
2: Slow. Your roll, Aslan. Listen. Take it easy. You've got four kids, right? Okay. Instead of that, you, you've got your own kind of, you've got your own kind of burning man roaring twenties right at home. Enjoy your four kids. Isn't it better to just stay at home with them? No, man. I, I'm I'm bored of Paw Patrol. I want to
1: go out there and like like experience it. I want like, I want pleasure. I want pleasure all the time.
2: Okay. All right. Yep. Okay. I see what's going on here. What? What is it? What's going on? Uh, didn't a certain someone? who shall remain nameless, just finished a certain nonfiction book they've been working on for nearly a year and a half and handed it in to their publisher this week? I mean, more like two years, but yes, I finished my book. What's your point? And didn't a certain somebody feel a rush of joy, euphoria, and freedom when they did said accomplishment? Yeah, yeah, I felt absolutely terrific, yeah. And now, uh, does that certain someone have some feelings that are starting to slowly subside? And is this unnamed person starting to now feel miserable? So fucking miserable. And uh, you'd be willing to bring that joy back any way you possibly can? I'll literally do anything, yeah. Don't you see, Reza, you're addicted to dopamine.
1: You got a taste of the Big D and you want more, man. No, don't. Please don't say it like that. Okay, my wife listens to this podcast. You
2: love Big D. You love Big D. <laughs> dopamine. You took a I'll swing dopamine. on the dope rope, Rez. You got a front row seat, but the Dope Cabana and Sinatra is performing, you know?
1: <sighs> oh, my God. Okay, I'm addicted to dopamine. Wait, wait, wait. But that's not a bad thing, right? Like, I mean, isn't dopamine like the pleasure no, no, chemical? Don't worry. Don't worry. It's not your fault.
2: Okay. Oh, my God. I think you're right. I'm, I think I'm addicted to dopamine. Hey, hey, hey. Well, slow down now. Come on. It's not your fault. It's not. No, no, no. We're all addicted to dopamine. Okay. Okay. But that's not, how is that a bad thing though? Like, isn't dopamine like the pleasure chemical? Aha. But there's the rub, my friend. There ain't no such thing as pleasure without pain. You feel me? Wait
1: a minute, wait a minute. Are you saying that the reason we're all so miserable all the time
2: is because we're all addicted to the thing that makes us less miserable? Exactly. It's a conundrum. Or rather, it's a dopinundrum. <laughs> <laughs> so here to discuss said quandary is the Stanford... Therapist, scientist, raconteur, Dr. Anna Lemke, author of Dopamine Nation. Yep, she's a specialist in
1: the opioid epidemic in the United States. She's also the author of Drug Dealer MD. (laughs) That's one of my favorite, favorite book titles of all time. How Doctors
2: Were Duped, Patients Got Hooked, and Why It's So Hard to Stop. She got her undergraduate degree at Yale and her MD at Stanford. This new book is a New York Times bestseller. And she even appeared in the 2020 Netflix documentary, The Social Dilemma. Which I saw and changed the way that I think about social media. So thank you, Dr. Lemke. Welcome to the show, Dr. Anna Lemke. Okay, milkshakers, we've got Anna Lemke right here. Hi, Anna, how are you? Hi, I'm good. So nice to see you. This book was a revelation. I loved it so much. It's gotten me thinking on so many different levels. Dopamine Nation, finding balance in the age of indulgence. Cannot recommend it more highly. Let's start like we're being shot out of a cannon. (laughs) What the fuck is dopamine? (laughs) And really, how is it different than pleasure itself?
3: So dopamine is a chemical that we make in our brain. It is essential to the experience of pleasure, motivation, and reward. The fundamental difference between things that are reinforcing, that is to say addictive, and those that are not, is that things that are reinforcing release a whole lot more dopamine all at once in a part of the brain called the reward pathway. However, dopamine shouldn't just be equated with the experience of pleasure. Dopamine is also released in response to things that are novel, new, or different. Dopamine can even be released in response to aversive or painful stimuli if the volume is turned up really high on those. So really the best way to think of dopamine is that it is about pleasure, motivation, and reward, but it's also an important signal for us to be aware of changes in our immediate environment that are fundamental to our survival,
1: I found this absolutely fascinating. Uh, that because I'm one of those people who just assumed that dopamine was, um, you know, pleasure itself. Like, but you you make this very interesting distinction that dopamine actually motivates us to do things that we think will bring us pleasure, right? It's not just like it does. It's not a a pleasure stimulant. It, it motivates us to go out there and try to do things that we think uh, will bring us pleasure. Can you help us understand kind of the difference between those two things?
3: Right. So the classic experiment is that scientists engineered a group of rats to have no dopamine transmission. And what they discovered with those rats is that if they put food in the rat's mouth, the rat would eat the food, swallow it, and even seem to get pleasure from it, as much as you can tell that from a rat eating food. Mm
1: -hmm. I'm actually quite adept at uh, (laughs) noticing rat pleasure, but go on.
3: Good, good, I'm glad. But if you take that food and you place it a mere body length away from the rat, the rat will starve to death. It can't even be bothered to get up. To go get that food. And that was really the clue to scientists that hey, dopamine is important for pleasure, things like euphoria, but it's also really important to the experience of motivation to go get the reward and maybe even more important to that phenomenon. So if you're
2: if you're taking a bite of a donut, are you getting dopamine? Is the dopamine the pleasure of like, oh, that's a crispy sweet donut? Or is the dopamine that, but also like you should eat more donuts or you should have donuts every day, or you should eat more (laughs) sweet, crunchy things every day. Like how, how exactly does that add up?
3: Yes. Okay. So we have been wired over millions of years of evolution to approach pleasure and avoid pain. And one of the main brain signals that we get to get us to do that approach pleasure and avoid pain is dopamine. We're always firing dopamine at a tonic baseline, but the deviation from that baseline, either above the baseline or below the baseline, is really fundamental to understanding the role of dopamine. So, getting to your question, when I bite into a really delicious donut, um, you know, I have a, a sensory taste experience that goes immediately to my brain, that goes to the part of the brain called the reward pathway, and that releases dopamine because sugar is inherently re- reinforcing for almost everybody. So then I say to myself, oh wow, that was pleasurable. I want to do it again, right? So we the, we we lay down memory for the that experience for our initial reaction to that stimulus. It's a very powerful memory. The more pleasurable the experience, the more powerful the memory. And then yes, I want to repeat that experience in the future. Now, I want to qualify that by saying that people are different in terms of what gives them intense pleasure. Mm. There is this concept of drug of choice. So what might be really reinforcing for you might not be that reinforcing for me Mm. and vice versa.
1: Well, What I find fascinating, though, is that we're at the stage now where we can actually measure, right, the amount of dopamine that you get from whatever the pleasure activity is. Uh in fact, um according to this research, so chocolate can increase our dopamine above baseline by about fifty percent. And sex can do it at about a hundred percent, which I love. I love the idea that sex is just twice as good as chocolate. That's it. Now we know exactly how much better sex is than chocolate. Twice as good everyone.
2: No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
3: Well, let me qualify that for a second. It was <laughs> it was an experiment in rats, and it was actually you know in units. Just it sort of dopamine to sort of become the currency. Wait a
2: minute, how did they get the rats to smoke the cigarettes?
3: <laughs> yes, so they didn't smoke the cigarettes. They delivered nicotine intravenously. Okay, I know, I right. know that. that oh, was oh a which,
1: sorry. Which, by the way, gives that you hundred and fifty percent nicotine. I love the idea of rats in like,
2: yes. they, they hand them a lit, lit cigarettes, and rats are like, right? Uh, that was a great screw, right. baby. Chilling,
3: <sighs> chilling. Um, so, but, I, but it's, I, yeah, it's important, I think, to point out that. That it is an experiment in rats. It's not in humans because we don't stick probes in people's brains to measure their dopamine levels in real time. What we do in humans is actually neuroimaging studies that can show us um, at a more, let's say, a less specific level that indeed that part of the pathway, the the reward pathway is lighting up and give us some sense of the intensity of the dopamine um, stimulus. And I think that's important to point out because. It, again, this concept of drug of choice is really important. Like sex might be really, really reinforcing for me, but for you, chocolate might be better.
2: Dr. Lemke, you you tell these incredible stories throughout the book. So it's not just kind of this data. Um, incredible stories from your therapeutic practice. Um, the one that you you start off with a bang, no pun intended, so to speak, <laughs> with uh <laughs> A man who continually, over the course of his life, invents masturbation machines. Yes. Um, which, by the way, um, he should be marketing. But
3: <laughs> and also, um,
1: also, people, you don't need a machine. I mean, I don't
2: know. When you read the story, you're kind of like, <laughs> Yeah. No, I know the machine. It sounds horrific. And it caused this person no end of humiliation mm-hmm. and pain throughout his life. So I don't, I, I feel even bad joking about it. And you have the teenage girl who has gotten so addicted to pot and marijuana, which by the way, people think like, it's not addictive at all. I know so many people that have been really, truly addicted to it, Um, but doing a gram a day, like that's just a ton of like just edibles and these stories of addiction in the extreme that you've dealt with uh, in your practice, it seems like all the time. And one of the things you talk about throughout the book that's really interesting is there's a I don't want to say this the wrong way. It seems like you have a certain admiration for these addicts in a way. Or you're or rather, you kind of you flip the switch, you flip the story a little bit to say, here are people that will go to incredible lengths in their lives. They'll they'll set up, you know, a masturbation machine. It'll take days, weeks, months to build in order to get a few lousy minutes of dopamine high. Yeah. You, you seem in a way to you identify with the addicts you you empathize with them and in some ways you kind of admire them and their efforts and i'd love to hear your personal connection to that and 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 bottom line like what role does dopamine play in addiction
3: hmm. well let me start by saying that You know, I've been treating addiction for more than 20 years, and I can honestly say that I feel like I've learned more from my patients than they've learned from me. I think that people in recovery from severe addiction are modern day heroes and also modern day prophets. They're absolutely amazing people who demonstrate tremendous courage in the face of incredible adversity. And when they come out the other side, they really are repositories for so much wisdom. And I think, um, especially at this time, you know, in history, um, exactly the kind of wisdom that we need. So my, you know, I do not see addiction as an otherness. I, I really see us as all vulnerable to addiction in the modern age where feel-good drugs and behaviors are universal, unlimited and infinitely accessible. Mm -hmm. And so people with addiction and recovery can really guide the way and provide roadmaps for the rest of us for navigating this dopamine overloaded world. And their stories in particular, their lived experience really is, is a powerful, powerful guide because if they can do it in this Mm. crazy world that we live in, then surely the rest of us can do it. I, Mm. I would also say that, um, you know, when, when Jacob, my patient with a very severe uh, sex addiction, came to see me, um, he happened to come about, oh, well, I think three to five years after I myself had um, overcome a mild addiction to romance novels. And um, when I met him and I heard his story, you know, certainly there was a part of me and I, I talk about in this, this in the book that was like horrified, right? That, that he had gone to such lengths. And then I just realized like in a flash, you know what? That could have been me. I mean, that totally could have been me. And in a way it was me because I had my own machine of sorts, which was this, you know, electronic device, this Kindle, that gave me this access to all of these romance novels that progressed over time to Frank Erotica. And I was using it in, in a self and other destructive way. So really, it was his case that sort of crystallized something I'd been wanting to communicate and had difficulty communicating until I met him. And I also want to just say thank you Jacob for having the courage and the generosity to share your story with readers mm. because um, you know without that the book wouldn't be possible. And I've um, you know told him many times since the book was published how much he's helped people and it's been really positive experience for him him too.
1: Rain, uh, I don't know if you know this about me, but uh, this year I turned fifty. Whoa! Yeah, I know. Whoa! Can you imagine I'm like an old man, <laughs> Grandpa Soon, Aslan. I'm gonna, I'm gonna need like you know lower prescription costs. I want to be worried about that stuff. I'm gonna be talking about re- reverse mortgages all the time. I may even, even have to join
2: the AARP. Well, uh, too slow, bro. I already joined the AARP. For, for real, out. legit. I'm 56. I am a card-carrying member. And when I say card-carrying member, I literally have an AARP card in my pocket. I'm so psyched to use it. And listen, there's so many reasons to join AARP. As we get older, we're more concerned about affordable health care, lower prescription costs, protecting Social Security and Medicare. AARP advocates for you and offers financial aid and job resources, fraud protection help, information on joining local volunteer groups, and much, much more because AARP knows you've got a lot of good years ahead. There's commercial benefits, folks. 61% average savings on prescription drugs not covered by Medicare and up to 15% off meals at participating restaurants. I'm looking at you, Denny's. So try the benefits yourself. Go to aarp.org slash milkshake to join for just $12 for your first year with automatic renewal. You'll get a second membership for free plus AARP the magazine and a free gift. That is aarp.org slash milkshake.
1: I think a lot of people are wondering whether CBD actually works. Like, is it a real thing? Well, let me put it this way. Over 90% of doctors said that their patients have used CBD to treat some health condition or another. Listen, when nine out of 10 patients are using CBD, that speaks volumes about how safe and effective CBD can be. So let me tell you about cbdistillery.com. With over 2 million customers, CB Distillery is the source that I trust. When patients tell the doctors that they use CBD for help with their health conditions, what are some of those conditions? Rain, you're a big fan of the CBD.
2: I do. Well, the main thing is is sleep. So sometimes I get kind of anxious at night. My brain is spinning and I'm just lying there. Or sometimes I'll just, I'll go to sleep and I'll just wake up like 45 minutes later, like wide awake as if my body thought it was a nap. And uh, CBD oil, um, it really helps with uh, sleep. So if you haven't discovered the power of CBD, you're missing out. Go to cbdistillery.com, where you order online with no prescription required and enter milkshake for 20% off. Again, enter milkshake for 20% off at cbdistillery.com. That's cbdistillery.com. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, and South Dakota. Yeah, it, it 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 and this is why the book is so successful. It grounds the science, but it also as a reader, it so engages your heart because you just feel for these people and their struggle and it helps, you know, for you know, I've had addiction issues through my life with alcohol, and other things. And um, but for people that don't haven't experienced that, it's yeah. it's a pretty alien concept. Why don't you just stop? Right. But these stories allow you to see like you kind know, of how deep the rabbit hole goes, you know, Mm -hmm. to quote the matrix.
3: Yes. And I think for me, for most of my life and career, I didn't, did, I thought I didn't have the addiction gene. I really did. Cause like, I'd never been addicted to anything. Substances I've tried that other people said were great. I'm like, I don't get it. But Mm -hmm. the truth was I just hadn't yet encountered my drug of choice. And then along Mm -hmm. came the internet and along came e-readers And for whatever reason, I hadn't really read a romance novel in my life until middle age. But I read The Twilight Saga, and I was gone. I mean, I was off and running (laughs) for the next two years. And it was kind of crazy. Like, I kind of woke up from it at some point. And I talk about in the book sort of how I did But I was like, wow, I think I just got addicted to romance novels. But it happened insidiously.
2: Um, And it's so funny you bring that up because one of my other heroes, Dr. Gabor Mate, talks about his kind of addiction with record consuming you know shopaholic for record albums and his collection of thousands of record albums that he's never even opened or listened mm. to but he has to have them and uh and this is kind of sidebar conversation but um you know his his thesis is a little different than yours his is that addiction really comes from childhood trauma and it is has a direct correlation um I don't think you're negating what he's saying at all but What are your thoughts on uh, his viewpoint and so many other people that are addiction specialists that, you know, if you treat the childhood trauma portion of the addiction, that that is, that is better than just kind of like doing anything that remotely seems like putting a bandaid on the addiction itself or dealing with the addiction itself.
3: Yes. So I certainly, you know, as a psychiatrist believe in understanding where we've come from and and trying to piece together those, especially early childhood um, milestones so that we can truly see, you know, how and why we cope in the way that we cope. We see things the way that we see, you know, like our sort of underlying, you know, maladaptive strategies. But I do think that it's possible to spend too much time there. And that sometimes people who have like the ideal childhood and great families and partners and the perfect job and great social networks, like those people can get addicted too. So Mm -hmm. even in the absence of, you know, a trauma, like there's the physiologic, biologic piece of it that is incredibly powerful that doesn't require um, another explanation. Mm. I also think that sometimes, you know, perseverating about like, well, what caused my addiction can actually delay making progress with the addiction. You know, as one of my patients put it very well, sometimes insight is the booby prize. Um, And, you know, just because we understand or think we understand, you know, why we do this maladaptive behavior, it doesn't necessarily lead to our ability to change that behavior. So um, that's why I really think it's important, again, to to move sort of to to appreciate the impact of trauma, but to sort of move beyond it. I will also say that I have seen real harm done on the extreme end where, um, you know, some mental health care providers actually get to a point where they're like colluding with patients to find the trauma Including trauma that doesn't really exist. Mm, um, mm. And so I think that this kind of overemphasis on that piece of it can be harmful.
2: I think that when you were younger, you were probably molested by a vampire. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> it's possible.
3: It's possible. <laughs>
1: um, I, I, I love the way that you're you're talking about this, and it's, it's such a fascinating way of thinking about how addiction works, but more to the point of of the book. So what exactly is the role that dopamine plays in fostering addictions? You have this whole fascinating section here about sort of the relationship between pleasure and pain. And you use uh, the kind of metaphor of a seesaw, right? That they're like on you know that your brain is a seesaw and there's pleasure on one side and pain on the other side and and when you sort of do something to give pleasure your brain naturally wants to kind of you know stabilize the seesaw again and and bring up pain and it's such a fascinating way of thinking about not just the relationship between those two things but how dopamine which the purpose of which is to make us seek pleasure can end up causing so much pain necessarily uh, talk talk us through that what what's the what what exactly is the role that dopamine plays in fostering the kinds of addiction that you were talking about
3: so to me one of the most exciting findings in neuroscience in the last hundred years or so is that pain and pleasure are co-located in the brain uh, which means that the same parts of the brain that process pleasure also process pain and they work like opposite sides of a balance so imagine that there's a balance like a a teeter-totter in a kid's Mm -hmm. playground or a board on a fulcrum in the part of your brain called the reward pathway, a part that has been conserved over millions of years of evolution, is similar across species. It hasn't changed. It's vital for survival. And this balance represents how we process pleasure and pain. When we experience something pleasurable, it tips to the pleasure side, something painful It tips to the pain side. But one of the overarching rules governing this balance is that it wants to remain level. It doesn't want to be tipped for very long to the side of pleasure or pain. And in fact, the biological definition of stress is any deviation from this neutral baseline, Mm. which scientists call homeostasis. The way that our balance restores homeostasis or a level balance after a deviation is by tilting an equal and opposite amount to whatever the initial stimulus was before going back to level. So for example, when I eat a ro- when I when I read a romance novel, right? Dopamine is released in my reward pathway, my balance tips to the side of pleasure, I feel good. But no sooner has that happened than my brain adapts to increased dopamine and I imagine that as these little neuroadaptation gremlins hopping on the pain side of my balance <laughs> to bring it level again but the gremlins like it on the balance. So they don't get off when it's level, they stay on until uh-huh. I'm tipped an equal See, an amount, yeah. equal and opposite amount to the side of pain. And that's that come down or that after effect, or that moment of, you know, right when I finish one chapter, like not wanting to put it away because I don't want to feel that come down, right? I don't want to feel that balance tilted to the side of pain. So I So I keep reading. But here's the other important rule governing this balance. With repeated exposure to the same or similar stimulus, that initial response to pleasure gets weaker and shorter, but that after response gets stronger and longer. So the gremlins get stronger. They get more numerous. They get muscles, right? And that means that over time, if I continue to read romance novels for days to weeks to months to years, which is what I did, I end up with enough gremlins on the pain side of the balance to fill this whole room. Now I'm in addicted brain. Because what that means is that I need my drug not to feel good, but just to restore balance and to feel normal. When I'm not using, I'm walking around with a balance, tilted to the side of pain. I'm in a dopamine deficit state. That means other things aren't interesting. My husband's not that interesting. My kids aren't that interesting. My work's not that interesting, right? Um, Mm -hmm. And I need ever more potent forms, right? I started with Twilight, but I ended up with 50 Shades of Grey. Why? Because I got a lot, a lot more gremlins to counterbalance. <laughs> so, and this is really why, why people relapse, even after they've stopped using for sustained periods of time, even after so much is better in their lives. It's because they're walking around with that balance tilted to the side of pain. The universal symptoms of withdrawal from any addictive substance are anxiety, irritability, insomnia, depression, and intrusive thoughts of wanting to use, otherwise known as craving.
1: See, what I find so fascinating about the what you just said is that yes, it makes it makes a lot of sense on the individual level. In fact, I think you know, even before I'd heard you say this, you know, just anecdotal evidence about, you know, crashing from a high or whatever, like we've all had that experience. So we kind of intuitively understand the the seesaw, you know, metaphor. Um, but when you expand it to the societal level suddenly so many things start to make sense because like our entire uh, contemporary society has been about mitigating pain. Like we have the ability now to make sure you don't feel pain, right? Right. Physical pain, emotional pain, we can handle all of it. But then why is it that as a society, we're more miserable now than we've ever been? Not because things are making us necessarily more miserable, although there's plenty of things making us more miserable, but because we are so adept now at bringing us pleasure that we're, it, it balances, right? The gremlins show up. So, you know, I don't ever have to be bored anymore. I don't ever have to have any physical pain if I have, like, emotional distress, I can take care of that either with a pill or with Netflix, right? Right. Uh, you know, I don't ever have to be lonely because I have my phone with me. Mm-hmm. So, like, all I can give myself pleasure whenever I want to. And the inevitable consequence to that is that I am making myself more miserable. Right. <laughs> right? The right. reason we're all so miserable is because we've gotten so good at avoiding being miserable. That just blows my mind. Folks, is your company or business having a tough time hiring the people you need? I mean, the producers at Milkshake don't know this, but we're about to fire all of them. And we're, we're desperate for good, competent employees. And listen, we're at a time right now where companies, regardless of what size they are, whether we're talking about a coffee shop or like a retail store, They just cannot keep up with hiring. Right now, there are 46% more jobs being posted than before the pandemic. And there are 44% fewer candidates applying to those jobs. So you need to find the right candidates and hire them fast. Workable can help. Workable accelerates every step of your hiring process from find. To Hire.
2: Workable helps you cast the widest net possible by posting your jobs to all the top job boards. That's more than 200 total with just one click. It helps you evaluate and hire quickly with modern tools like video interviews and e-signatures and Workable will help you automate repetitive tasks like scheduling interviews. So you can spend your time on what's important, making hires. So whether you're hiring for your coffee shop or your engineering team, Workable, or your podcast, or your podcast. Workable is exactly what you need to hire the right people fast. Start hiring today with a risk-free 15-day trial. If you hire during the trial, which many do, it won't cost a thing. Just go to workable.com to start hiring. Workable is hiring made easy Yeah. Yeah, you're
3: absolutely right. And, and, you know, for me, it's been 20 plus years of seeing patients coming in and more and more often seeing people who have really everything you could ever want, you know, good partners, good friends, good jobs, good health. And yet They have pain from the tips of their eyelashes to the tips of their toes with no identifiable cause. They're depressed, they're anxious, they can't get out of bed in the morning. They feel guilty on top of feeling bad, right? And this is exactly, I think it just sort of dawned on me one day, gosh, you know, I think it's possible that, of course, there are many causes for for distress in the modern world, but I began to think that perhaps at the core of some of our suffering is the fact that we're constantly bombarding our reward pathway with these tiny hits of dopamine and that the cumulative effect over time is that we've put ourselves in this dopamine deficit state so when we use it feels like you know self-medication but really all it's doing is driving the continued suffering and if you look epidemiologically i mean data points to support this are That the richest countries have the highest rates of anxiety, depression, and suicide. Um, The richest countries have the highest rates of addiction. And we're seeing addiction now in demographic groups that were previously relatively insulated. So, for example, alcohol use disorder has increased 85% in women in the past 30 years and 50% in, in people over the age of 65. If you look at 70% of global deaths are due to diseases caused by modifiable risk factors. And the top three risk factors are uh, inactivity, smoking, and poor diet. So we've really reached this tipping point where we're essentially titillating titillating ourselves to death.
2: Wow, there's there's so much to unpack in what you just said. I have so many questions that have popped up. So let me... Great, I love it. I think you need to repeat that last thing that you said. Because this is this, I was, when I was reading through the book and then this prep document for this interview, I was astonished by that statistic about the number of deaths that are caused from inactivity, overeating, uh, obesity, cigarette smoking behaviors that can be, that are modifiable. Right. Um, But for, so what role does dopamine play in the fact that we are not modifying those behaviors? Is it just an addiction to a dopamine that gives us an addiction to cigarettes or an addiction to eating those donuts that is, that is
3: killing us? So I don't usually talk about it as an addiction to dopamine because to me, dopamine is, it's just a signal, right? Yeah. We're not yeah. actually addicted. It just serves
2: a per. It serves that, a very valuable purpose. That's like the right. Ramps. It keeps that, us alive.
3: That's right. It's I, yeah, exactly. Without desire, we wouldn't bother to get up and do anything. So mm-hmm. we need it, and it's important. And it's it's the it's the relative nature of it, you know. And so when we're talking about you know the the growing numbers of global deaths that are due to things like obesity and smoking and in inactivity, you know, we're we're talking about the fact that. We have reached now this this tipping point really, where for many people across the world, we have our basic survival needs met. And yet we're not flourishing. And part of why we're not flourishing is because of this mismatch between our primitive wiring and our modern ecosystem. We are surrounded by so many opportunities for increased dopamine, that we are essentially at war with our gremlins, right? We're bombarding our brains with dopamine in ways, large and small, throughout any given day. All of us, all of us, and in order to try to compensate for this fire hose of dopamine, we have to downregulate our own dopamine production and our own dopamine transmission. And so we're all in this kind of you know dopamine deficit state, and that again is a state of anxiety irritability, insomnia, dysphoria, Mm -hmm. craving, completely below the level of consciousness or awareness. It's very, very subtle. We're such fragile creatures at the end of the day, so susceptible to this phenomenon, not able to see true cause and effect without effort. And so we're walking around, like, I think more unhappy, you know, more unhappy. Mm -hmm. Um, And and, And how is
2: this affecting us during the pandemic?
3: Well, interesting. So during the pandemic, like everybody's online more. So people getting more addicted to all of the online drugs that exist. And there are mm-hmm. too many to count. Um, people not having to, you know, actually get up and commute to work. So more likely to drink. Um, so alcohol sales went up. Alcohol consumption went up because, you know, people didn't have to really get it together the next morning. And that's that's, a, that's something that gets people to not consume, right? If you got to show up and give your A game, you're going to kind of think about, you know, what impact drinking alcohol the night before might have on that. Mm -hmm. Um, So certainly, you know, digital products, uh, consumption of substances, very sadly, drug overdoses, which had just started to decline in 2018, surged again, Mm. all-time highs, over 100,000 drug overdoses in this country between March 2020 and March 2021. So sad, so tragic. Some of that is due to the um, the supply chain phenomenon and people not having access to their usual supply and then having an adulterated supply or losing tolerance mm-hmm. and so using more than they could actually tolerate. Some of it's just the progression of addiction. So really, we have the phenomenon where people who are already addicted um, got worse. Some of them died. People who were sort of borderline addicted got addicted. But I just want to qualify all of that by saying, a lot of my patients loved sheltering in place and got a lot better during COVID because it slowed their lives down. They weren't constantly being tempted by parties, by, you know, the liquor aisle at the grocery store, by, um, you know, all their friends getting together and doing this, that and the other, more time to exercise, more time with family. So I think it's important to acknowledge that for some people, quarantine and shelter in place was actually a positive.
2: So... Do you remember um, Grace Jones had uh, an album in the late 70s, early 80s called Slave to the Rhythm?
3: I remember Grace Jones. I don't remember that album.
2: Well, I'm a slave to the algorithm. I truly am like, whoever invents algorithms, like they do such a masterful job. Like I was reading this article about how the makers, I think it's called King, and they're in Sweden, and they make um, Candy Crush and yeah. they have psychologists oh, yeah. on staff so that you can increase the dopamine when you line up all your little candies and it goes <laughs> and yep, yep. it just makes you feel like oh that's so good i solved that and you just feel that and yes. they and they so they literally do that at, at the end and and then they want you to kind of spend the money to buy the extra tokens that allow you more lives or more chances or or what have you i had to I was playing Candy Crush. I had to take Candy Crush off my phone because I was just too, I I was on level like 347 and then realizing like, (laughs) wait a second. I'm spending. Weeks have passed and I have not left the house. (laughs) I have spent at 87 hours on these, with these stupid (laughs) Swedish candies. And then, and then, you know, I had to take social media off my phone because I was just like scrolling Mm -hmm. and Poking, And then they have the same thing. They have psychologists on staff helping develop <laughs> these algorithms so that you just swipe and scroll and, and respond and blah, blah, blah. You can ask Reza about that. He is very, very familiar with how that works in the <laughs> Twitter sphere. Hey, don't out me. And then All right. And then finally, finally, Anna, and I relate to your romance novel thing, I had to take the Apple News app off Ooh. my phone because I Ooh, was I scrolling news. And mm. even the news has an algorithm like – If you read, here's the 10 most kind of news that you read, and YouTube does the same thing, by the way, um, then you get more news stories. And I was spending, you know, an hour and a half a day, two hours a day just reading news stories. Like, who cares? I can just read the New York Times or The Guardian or something like that and just get a sense of, like, what's going on. That's what I need to know. I don't need to, like, I don't need to be reading every single article there is about Uh, the Ukraine or the Seattle Seahawks. Right. (laughs) So, but what this makes me think of is humanity back in the day, you know, when we were cavemen or when primitive society, you know, early agricultural society or hunter gathering or whatever, like, it's like, Oh, blackberries are in season. I'm going to have a handful. Oh, I got a little bit of dopamine. That's like your dopamine for the month. Yes. (laughs) Or maybe even the year. And and you know you have sex with your mate in the cave and like there's a little bit more right you know, here's some I'm gonna roast this deer hoof over yeah. my fire now I got a little bit more but we we were not designed for this maximum
0: right
2: uh, dopamine overload like Reza was painting that portrait so perfectly of like we're never bored Um and uh, you don't have to feel any kind of displeasure. Yeah, we, we can and- we can. It's like Brave New World with Soma. Yes. Soma is good. You know, if people <laughs> aren't familiar with the reference, the book by Aldous Huxley about, you know, where they actually do figure out a medication that doesn't produce the gremlins; it only produces the the lack of pain, uh, without any gremlin gremlin free. So, so. Here we are in this situation with nonstop algorithms. Uh, we weren't created for this. You know, it's just yeah. it's just a flood of distraction and soothing and escaping pain. Um, so what is, what is this show about us? Where are we headed as a species?
1: Barring, of course, some post-apocalyptic horror that, like, you know, takes us back to just eating blackberries every once in a while.
3: Yes. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I... I don't even think we necessarily have to talk about where are we headed as a species. I really think we're already there as a species, which Mm -hmm. is if, you know, the, the, the ways in which we are auto stimulating ourselves um, causes so much suffering. You know, it, it, it's not, it's not a matter of depriving ourselves of things that are really fun. It's really a matter of like people are really suffering. I mean, people are really in distress. I really feel that. Um, you know, and I, and, I, and I share it, right? And as a parent, I, I see it and, and, and you know, my community. I mean, it's, we're in trouble now, right? It's, 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 it's contributing to uh, poor mental health, it's contributing uh, to loss of life. Um I mean we're already we're there, we're there.
1: Mm-hmm. So the big question that we're exploring in this episode is essentially why is everybody so damn miserable all the damn time
3: right <laughs> right yes. Um and then that's a that's such
1: an important question. It's a, it it's is a really a, yeah, important absolutely. question It really it really is yeah, but talking to you and 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 you know listening to what you're saying and reading this book and the research behind it and understanding the, intimate connection between pain and pleasure, it seems to me that the answer is that we can all be less miserable if only we allowed ourselves to just be more occasionally miserable. (laughs) <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yes. Like we will be a so more... obsessed with trying to remove misery, <laughs> right. we'd be less
2: miserable. Yeah, yes. just dwell let's dwell a little bit more in our misery and in our boredom. Like just be a yeah. little yes. bit more bored Does and miserable.
1: Hurt? Let it hurt for a while. And right. and
2: then you will be happier like we were yes. In exactly. the 70s and the 80s. We were <laughs> a little, little bit more bored and a little bit yes. more miserable. And right. guess what? We were happier. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, is that really is that really the
1: answer, Anna? Like just we can we can be less miserable if we just allow us our, ourselves to be a little more miserable.
3: <laughs> I take the lead from my patients with severe addiction for whom figuring this out is a matter of life and death. And what they have shown me is that when they abstain from their drug of choice and let those gremlins hop off the pain side of the balance, the reward pathway resets itself. They achieve dopamine homeostasis and they're able to enjoy more modest rewards. It is the important starting place for our own wellness and healing is to essentially Issue these pleasures, avoid them, not forever necessarily, but for long enough that we can establish our natural baseline, a healthier baseline, a new pay- baseline where we have a supple pleasure-pain balance, where we're level again, where we can do something like you know, have a dinner with friends or watch a sunset, and it's actually genuinely enjoyable. You know, we don't have to be watching a sunset while watching Netflix while smoking pot. While Instagramming. Instagram Instagramming. I mean, it is funny how much this this is like you know, kind of like akin to another type of you know behavior that people do um, to pleasure themselves. I just I'm, I'm sorry. I hope that's not too <laughs> off. <laughs>
2: Wow, she went there. But that this is, is so funny. <laughs> I, I really we're think we're going to get is, you disbarred you know, from Stanford <laughs> University for
3: that crap. I,
1: I, mean, I mean, to be perfectly honest, like a lot of our episodes, you know, we ask these questions, but we never answer them. Yeah. <laughs> or if we do answer them, the answers aren't very yeah. satisfying. This one just makes a lot of weird counterintuitive
3: sense to Great. me. Great. I'm glad because yeah. I've got more. I've got more. So, so but avoiding those. Inv- yes. I want to hear them more. Okay. But. but is what you're talking about and just
2: insert this in there um no pun intended uh is
3: some of this uh, dopamine fasting this is, is that, dopamine is that, fasting this is dopamine is that fasting that you're talking about right yeah. so so let me just say like when when i talk about dopamine fasting what i mean is to choose that one or two things that we have a verklempt relationship with and eliminate that for 30 days so it's not everything that gives some kind of reinforcement pleasure. You can do that, but that's that's not really what I'm talking about. That's not the recipe that I recommend. What I say is choose that one or two things. For me, it was romance novels. Get it out of your house or whatever it takes for 30 days. Okay. Why 30 days? In my clinical experience, 30 days is the minimum amount of time it takes to restore baseline homeostasis. That is to say for those Gremlins to hop off the pain side of the balance and for your balance to be level again. I also always tell patients the first two weeks are hell. It feels like it will never end. You're anxious, you're depressed, you're craving, right? You can't imagine you'll get to a place where this is even remotely worth it. Why? Because it takes a while for those gremlins to hop off. They don't hop off right away. They like it on the balance. But if you continue to avoid your drug of choice, eventually they'll go, uh eh. And they'll go off and off, and, and eventually you make your way. And by weeks three and four, about eighty percent of folks feel a whole lot better. If they come back at week four and they don't feel better, that's also really useful information because it says, okay, there's something else going on here. Maybe this person has a major depressive disorder. Maybe you know there's some other biological um, you know malady that we need to identify. And then once folks get to that thirty days, they feel so much better. I no longer have to sell this project. They have now bought into it because they see it in their own experience. And that is just awesome, right? Because then it's like, oh, wait, I get it now. Like, I felt like smoking pot was alleviating my anxiety. But actually, now I've abstained for 30 days. My anxiety is better than it has been in years. The pot was actually making me anxious. And many, many, many such stories. So... um, That's my prescription, really, for for starters. Now, the second piece of it is, you remember this balance, when we do things that are pleasurable, so that initial stimulus tilts us to pleasure, those gremlins hop on the pain side. But likewise, if the initial stimulus is pain, those gremlins are agnostic to which side they hop on. They're going to hop on the pleasure side, and we're going to get a little tilt to the side of pleasure. Why? Because Pain or really any noxious stimulus from discomfort to actual physical pain is a signal to the body that we need to start to upregulate our own feel-good neurotransmitters and hormones because there's an injury, right? So then our little dopamine factories start like making more dopamine, right? So we actually get our dopamine indirectly, and that is a much more enduring form. So, if you just visualize dopamine spike, if we use an intoxicant, a pleasurable stimulus, it spikes up and then immediately goes down, but below baseline levels, into this dopamine deficit state. Whereas, if the initial stimulus is pleasurable, what we get is a slow rise in dopamine over the course of that painful stimulus, whether it's an ice cold water bath or exercising or whatever the heck it is. And then, even when we're done, and especially when we're done with that pain those dopamine levels remain elevated for hours afterwards. And we have a lot of good evidence to show that. So a much better way to get your dopamine is indirectly.
2: So, but, and and just repeat that a little bit, because I got a little bit lost. So how do you start that, that event, that slow dopamine release? You start it with a, with a painful event or just kind of a more moderate, uh, pleasurable event?
3: Ah, okay. So the key is that, So if you think about things that are potentially addictive, there are things that once we start them, we don't want them to end. Whereas there are other activities we can do is once we start them, we just can't wait till they're over. That's things like exercise. Now, of course, there's that rare animal out there who will tell you, I love to exercise. It feels great. But most of us are like, this is a slog. I really am going to be happy when this is over. Or they go in an ice-cold water bath, ouch, this really hurts. I'm really going to be happy when this is over. So those are the fundamental differences that we're talking about. And when we do things that are hard in the moment, what we get is a gradual increase in dopamine as we're doing that activity, as the body's trying to protect us from injury. And then those levels remain elevated even after we've completed that. So just to use a concrete example, uh, a fascinating study where they immersed adults in an ice cold water bath, measured dopamine, serotonin, norepinephrine levels over the course of the water bath, and again, saw this gradual rise in dopamine over the one hour course, and then dopamine levels remaining in that heightened place for hours after they were out of the bath before finally returning back to tonic baseline levels. Does that make sense? And that's in contrast to an intoxicant where you get that sudden spike, but then the sudden drop, and then the dopamine deficit state. That's the price we pay, but we don't usually see the connection between those two things. And then with repeated exposure to an intoxicant, we eventually settle out at a new lower baseline.
2: So when you were talking about this this seesaw pain and pleasure and slow release of dopamine, I thought about the Buddha and I thought mm. about Buddhism and the central idea that life is suffering. You know, in, in the original Sanskrit, it was, the word was dukkha. And that meant, it means not just suffering, it means irritant, um, something that makes you miserable, something that's annoying, something that makes just you sad. Funny. It's not just like suffering in right. the, in the grandest concept, but life is dukkha. And the the way around that and from the Buddhist principles is detachment or non-attachment from the things of this world. It's because we're clutching, we're grasping, we're wanting that that is creating dukkha. So really wasn't the Buddha talking about this kind of this dopamine seesaw?
3: Yes, the Buddha, Plato and Socrates. I mean, it's woven throughout theological texts. This is actually just very old wisdom recycled for the age of neuroscience. But I would say, and I do say this in the book, that even Buddha's middle way may not be enough for the world that we live in now because we're so inundated with dopamine at every turn that we may actually have to choose pain as a way to navigate this really insane ecosystem.
2: Oh my God, choose pain besides... The pain of ice
3: baths. Well, no, what are that, you talking about like <laughs> get up in
2: the morning and roll around and like garlic,
3: a hair shirts, um, and
2: uh, yeah, yeah, hair shirts and right. self flagellation and eat some dirt and then and then and then start your day.
3: Well, you know, I think everybody needs a different level of intensity, and honestly, for the modern person, just unplugging for an hour is so painful um, that that may be. All that they need to do in order to begin to reset reward pathways. Mm. I cannot tell you how many young people in particular I have talked to and suggested that they just put their device away for 24 hours. And the notion of that sends them into an absolute panic. Yeah. And I just it makes me feel super old. <laughs>
2: yeah. Uh, Dr. Lemke, this has been an absolutely brilliant, amazing conversation. I've gotten so much out of it. I think our listeners. Uh, all 407 of them will <laughs> as well. And um, But we, we end every episode with what we call the lightning round of life's big questions. We're going to throw some life's big doozy questions your way. We want to hear your personal response, the first thing that comes into your head. Okay. Um, and your lightning fast response to some of these questions. So describe your soul in 10 words or less.
3: My soul is the membrane between the universe and my inner consciousness.
1: Boom. Wow. That's actually, I think, the exact definition <laughs> of wow, the soul. Well done. Spot um, on.
2: What skill do you wish you had?
3: I wish I were good at music.
2: What is something that very, very few people know about you?
3: Ooh. Ah, very few people know that our first child died of leukemia.
2: I'm so sorry to hear that. That's Thank you. that's heavy and, and tragic and difficult. I'm very sorry. Yeah. It's okay. What
1: emotion do you wish
2: you could better control? Anger. You too, sister. <laughs> what is one eye-opening experience every person should have?
3: I hate to say be cliched about it, but um I guess it would be that the more we try to run from our pain, the faster it finds us. Mm-hmm.
1: Besides romance novels, uh, what's one thing that uh, you just can't live without? I mean, in a fun way. I don't mean like literally <laughs> in the way <laughs> that we've been discussing. And now that I asked this question, I realize the total inappropriateness yes, right. of it. But let's just pretend. <laughs>
3: uh, well... I would say the one thing I really couldn't live without is my kids. And I'll throw my husband in there, too. All right, (laughs) fine. That's (laughs) nice. If you could interview anyone living or dead,
1: who would it be, and what would you ask them?
3: Ooh, So, uh, Rez, I read your book on God, and I— I mean, I would really love to interview someone like Jesus Christ or Buddha. I'd really like to meet those people in person because I think I would discover they were really ordinary people (laughs) and I would just love to confirm that. Um, Mm -hmm. And I guess the other thing I'm just now in this moment, one of the things that I was fascinated in about in your book was this um, cave painting of a a human Mm -hmm. animal form and, you know, you you said that there's all this evidence that the cave painting actually represents a deity to them. But I thought to myself, what if it was just their equivalent of a superhero? Oh, yeah. Like it was like their, you know, cineplex. Yeah, the Lord of Beasts. Right. Uh, yeah. So I guess uh, I'd be curious. I'm curious about. I, 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 you know, honestly,
1: I'm not sure if they would make any distinction between God and superhero. There but, you go. Yeah.
3: And maybe we don't either, and and, that's a problem. (laughs) I think
2: today's young people don't worship God. They actually worship uh, Marvel's Avengers.
3: Well, that's exactly right. That's exactly right.
2: When do you feel most connected to the universe?
3: Probably when I'm seeing patients and feeling like I'm being of service. That's a very um, wonderful inflow moments for me. And then
1: last but not least, uh, what is your life's big question?
3: Oh, my life. I have so many big questions for life. I, I, I'm curious about whether or not we have the ability to choose. I wonder if there's a God. Um, I care about truth and justice, and I want to know what's true and what's just. I, I have too many questions.
1: Well, please, please email them all to us. We're running out of show ideas. <laughs> yes,
3: thank you. If you have answers, yeah, we'll, please we'll send pair them. We'll pare
2: it down for you, we'll narrow it down to your <laughs> thank one you. Thank you. That's a service we provide. Uh, Dr. Anna Lembke, thank you so much for being with us. What a scintillating conversation. Uh, Folks, make sure to pick up this book, Dopamine Nation. (laughs) Fascinating. (laughs) Um, Fascinating stuff. And um, thank you for joining us.
3: Well, thank you. This was really fun.
2: So Reza, um, what do you think? Dopamine fast? I mean, that, you up for I, it?
1: You know, the, the, it makes sense to me. This whole like, you know, you can stop being so miserable by being a little bit more miserable. Uh, so so if I were to do a dopamine fast, what would it be? What would it be? What would my dopamine fast be? Um, it's, it's tough. It's tough.
2: Uh, you tell me yours first. Well, could you? No, I'm going to give you one. Could you go... <laughs> Could you go one hour between nine and five? Could you go one hour between nine and five without uh, uh, email or text or Twitter? I can go one hour. Uh, Could
1: I go three hours? I would start to feel it then. Could I go the whole day? No.
2: No, I don't think so. Well, you got, I mean, you got to, you got to, Make some bread and butter for your for your family there. Yeah. I'm not, you know. But, okay, um, but but I don't
1: need social media to do that. So could I go, could I go 30 days without social media? Without when I say social media like I'm on like the TikTok, basically I'm just on Twitter. But you're on Twitter just without-
2: reading the tweets of people that you agree with and retweeting them and saying, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Ditto. I mean, I think my version of a dopamine fast, first of all, is my screen time is just through the roof. I don't know how many hours per day this phone is on in my hand. Drives my wife crazy, Uh, certainly. but, But, you know, I liked what she was saying about like the cold plunge. And there was a while earlier on in the pandemic when I was like exercising in the mornings with some weight training, which sucks and it's the worst and it sucks and it's awful and I hate it. And then I was going and sitting in our, Cold swimming pool, um, and 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 I, and I did. I felt it. I felt the difference. Mm. I had more productive days. I had more uh, calm days. I, I I felt a greater sense of peace and well being. And she talked about human flourishing, and I love that phrase, eudaimonia. The ancient Greeks called it the pursuit yeah. of human flourishing. And I flourished better when I did that. So I don't know about a dopamine fast, although I certainly need to put my phone down more, but. A little bit of pain in the morning, perhaps, will uh, set me off on on the uh, toward the pleasure principle. All right, I, I'm willing. I'm willing to try it. I'm, I'm willing to do
1: a, a 30 day no Twitter fast. 30 day no Twitter. 30 day no Twitter. Are
2: we hearing this right now, folks? Where uh, this is it folks. I'm going to do it. 30 days. So make sure to follow at Reza Aslan.
1: (laughs) Yes. So on that note, if you have a life's big question, send me a tweet about it (laughs) and I will not look at it for 30 days. Uh, You can find me on social at Reza Aslan. You can find Rain at Rain Wilson and you can find the podcast at Metamilk Podcast and on Instagram, which I also will not be looking at at Metaphysical Milkshake. Let us know your life's question and at the very least, Rain might
2: respond. Hey, folks, welcome back to the tail end of this episode. We recorded a little while ago with Anna Lemke, uh, all about Dopamine Nation and the dopamine in our brains. Of course, you know that. You've just heard the podcast. But we're coming back to this podcast a month later because Reza Aslan, my co-host, um, uh, Decided. He pledged. He committed to doing a dopamine fast, a Twitter dopamine fast, for one month. Yeah. Uh, at the conclusion of that pod, here we are a month later. It is now early March. Reza Aslan, how did it go?
1: I feel like I can see the world again.
2: The no, colors be serious. Are
1: brighter. Be serious. No, I'm just. No, I'm not. No, but but I will say this.
2: Um, you gave up Twitter for a month. I gave up all social media. All social media for, for a month. For a now, month. And you a, used to on Twitter. You used to uh, ten times a day pretty, for pretty five to ten pretty minutes. Active.
1: Yeah, yeah, uh, pretty active. I'm pretty active on on Twitter. Uh, I, I got to be honest with you. I I uh, I was not looking forward to it, but I knew that the whole point was to not look forward to it. Um, and then of course. This is so. On the first day of my social media fast, my football team, the Raiders, always will be known as the Oakland Raiders to me, uh, hired an entire new coaching staff, and I'm like, ah, oh, I can't get involved. On like the third day, my nemesis, my bet noir, Jeff Zucker,
2: uh, former president <laughs> of, was fired for having an affair.
1: Yeah gets in a scandal and is fired, and I can't gloat. I'm like, I all I want to do is gloat right now, and I can't gloat. And then, like, on the second week, Russia it starts the largest land war in Europe since 1939, and I'm like, Jesus Christ, this is not the time to be off of social media, but I did it. I did it. Uh, what did it do to me? I, well, I was bored more often. I will say that the first couple of weeks were weird because like for no reason at all, I would pick up my phone. I'd be like feeding my daughter. And then I would just pick up my phone almost automatically to, to go on Twitter for some stupid reason. And then realize, oh, I don't have Twitter on my phone. And then I'd put the phone down. So that was that was nice. Here's here's I think the 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 fundamental takeaway. And I haven't gone back yet. I will soon. After this podcast, I will go back. Is that um fundamentally I didn't miss it, which was weird. You know? Like at yeah. no point did I think to myself
2: like, uh, like even with all yes, of were, these amazing events going on in the world Even with all
1: these amazing things, I, you know, I found myself knowing less about what the hell is happening. You know, in the how was your how because- was
2: your anxiety state or emotional state any any
1: differences there? Well, that's interesting.
2: Yeah, no, I, I did I did feel better about things, calmer about things.
1: I mean, I certainly would have been a lot angrier. Were you more? You were more. You
2: can get very agita- around. Yeah.
1: I I get agitated very easily by, by world events. You know, Kevin McCarthy says something stupid and I'm like that
2: motherfucker.
1: And then I start yelling at my kids for no reason. And they're like, why are you angry? And I was like, it's not you. It's something, the minority leader in the house who has nothing to do with me whatsoever did that made me angry. So that was, that was nice. Um, yeah. I mean, honestly, I think that was the biggest thing that the two biggest impacts on my life was, I was bored more often, but it was okay. It was uh, I was okay sometimes just being bored and be like, I got nothing to do. I'm gonna stare out the window. That was nice. Yeah. Haven't been. I haven't been bored in a very long time. You know, basically since I got my phone, I haven't been bored. And then, uh, I had I you know I, I, I my poops took a lot less time. <laughs> <laughs> so my 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 wife appreciated
2: that part you know she'd so have to be like why are you still in the bathroom you weren't in the for the 12 minute poop so you did the 4 minute poop
1: yeah there was just yeah. nothing to do there's was nothing just... to
2: do but poop yeah. so yeah. you know you come well, out there you have it so um yeah folks uh Reza put it to a try uh are, will you what do you think try it people 30 days 30 days no social media what do you think you can give up um I'm gonna give up cocaine so That's- for 30 days Jesus yeah for 30 days thanks for listening Metaphysical Milkshake is executive produced by Rain Wilson Reza Aslan and Colin Thompson it is produced by Safa Samazadeh Yazd Paris Lane Mick DeMaria Hashem Self and DJ Lubel Cast Media is the production and distribution partner original music by Jeff Tang if Hollywood was making a biopic about your life uh, what would it be called and who would play you
3: Ooh, that's scary. Um, it would probably be called uh, "psychiatrist swimming against the stream," and um, maybe Rain Wilson would play me.
2: <laughs> I'd see that. I could do it. Yeah, yeah, I'm up for that.
3: Minus
0: the beard.
2: Well, I don't know.
3: Beard on.
0: <laughs> What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat